If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 20 to 25. If you're working through your New City Catechism, the question this week is, what else did God create the week before he created Adam and Eve? This week, it's God creates all things, and he sees that it is good, actually very good. All right, let's pray. Father God, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am. We declare with full confidence that you are great and there is none like you, none worthy of praise and adoration and worship, just you. And Father, as we look at a text that reminds us to exalt you, not ourselves, let us be reminded of truths we've already known or be convicted of truths we've known and have not lived or be enlightened with new truths. Father, thank you for your word that is not just for us to learn, but to live. Help us to live your word. In the name of Christ, he prayed. Or in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Simon was an inveterate fisherman. That means he was a persistent fisherman. And he was always known for exaggerating the one that got away. I can relate to that. And so one particular day when he was fishing by himself, he actually landed two huge fish. They were the largest he had ever gotten before. They were flounder, and he thought, man, I've got to invite the boys over. They've got to see what I caught. But he also realized it would be a bit ostentatious, prideful to put both fish on the table. So how does he subtly let them know that he caught more than one, two, in fact, huge flounder without looking prideful. He presented the problem to his wife who said, why don't you cut a piece from both of them? And he said, are you kidding me? Cut it up? No, no, no. I've got to have it in whole on the platter. And so he couldn't decide what to do, but he thought it through and he devised a plan. And when the boys were there, he came out of the kitchen with a platter with the largest flounder they had ever seen before. And they were ooing and aahing as he came to the table and he somehow managed to trip himself and fell on the floor and the platter went and the fish was ruined. And everyone said, oh my. And he brushed himself off and he casually called into the kitchen, honey, will you bring one of the other flounder that I caught? You know, the ones we were gonna give to the soup kitchen. That's pride. It's subtly letting people know that one is better than they have thought. Now, we would say that doesn't happen today. But have you ever read social media? You can't imagine how good our vacations are. And our kids? Whoa! And our grandkids? And sometimes it's almost a little embarrassing to read some of what we write, oh, not you, first hour, what they write 
on Facebook about themselves, about their families, all very subtle, but it's subtle in a way that kind of puts one forth as idyllic, better than one is, family who is more put together than is reality. It's pride. Now, pride is one of those sins, or would we even call it a sin? It's one of those things that seems so very insignificant. But then we go to Proverbs chapter 6. And in Proverbs chapter 6, we read these words. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to God. Now, you can see what the text says. But if you didn't know what the text says is the first thing that you would list that's an abomination to God, haughty eyes, is that what you and I would have put down? I doubt it. At least not me, maybe you. But I wouldn't have thought that. In fact, that list, most of that list wouldn't have made my crack seven. I, I wouldn't have put them there. There's a lot of things that I would say God hates and a lot of things that I would say God considers an abomination and haughty eyes, prideful eyes, is not one of them. And yet it makes number one. On the six things he hates, seven that are abomination to the Lord, haughty eyes. Why? Because it's our pride that not only robs God of his glory and his worship, but it's pride that becomes the downfall of the angelic world and the human world. If you go to Isaiah chapter 14, you and I discover that the highest created being was the son of the morning star, Lucifer. We know him as Satan, created as good, created as the highest of the created beings. And yet it tells us that he falls. Why? Because he wants to be just like God. And why does humanity fall in Genesis 3? Because we want to be like God, knowing good and evil. And Romans 5.12 essentially says, reading between the lines, that if you had been Adam, or you had been Eve, or I had been Adam when I had been Eve, we would have done the same thing. In my case, probably earlier in the game. That's really what Romans 5.12 says. So the fall of the angelic beings and the fall of humanity is pride. And so rather than being insignificant or unimportant, rather than developing how we can subtly let people know how good we are, how good our children, how good our grandchildren are, and elevate the family name, we ought to be very careful about pride. Our text today is about pride and robbing God of his glory. Let me read from Acts chapter 12. We'll read verses 20 to 25. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Those are Phoenician cities. They're seaboard cities. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus. Blastus is the chamberlain, that is the individual who manages Herod's household. 
I don't know what they bribed him with, but the price was good if they could get back in good with Herod. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. And we're going to see later on from Josephus that these royal robes are made of silver. And we have the Mediterranean sun and the Mediterranean sun shining down on silver, glitters and sparkles, and it looks pretty sharp. On an appointed day, Herod put on all of his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. As you and I begin in the text, again, we're introduced to the Herod family, Herod is a surname. It represents five individuals, really six, but five who are called Herod in the Gospels and the book of Acts. We talked a little bit about it last week. I'm gonna add to it. I'm gonna give us information I did not share last week. So the first Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the Builder, will take the throne in 34 BC, and the last Herod, Herod Agrippa II will exit the throne in 100 AD. So we have 134 years of having to deal with these five different Herods. Herod the Great, Herod the Builder, 34 BC to about uh, 4 BC. He is the one that sets the stage of how all of these Herods will act. And he is an exceptionally violent man. He's not only a builder, but if you get in your way, his way, he destroys you. We know that throughout his reign, he periodically had little pogroms. He would arrest leading families and put them to death, always thinking that someone was going to try and take the throne from him. We know that in the last year of his life, he arrested the leaders of many leading families, had them thrown into prison with this instruction, at my death, all of them are to be put to death so that somebody sheds a tear when I die. This is the kind of man he is. We know that he murdered three of his own sons. The Caesar quipped it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son because he murdered three of them. He murdered his son-in-law. He murdered his mother-in-law. He actually murdered his favorite wife. Mariamne the first. So he sets the stage of the violence that we will see from this family for 134 years. The second is actually the most violent of all. It's Herod. Um, Herod, uh, well, that's interesting. Archelaus. Don't think I ever forgot his name before. Oh, well, who cares who he is? Herod Archelaus. <laughs> He was so violent that the populace for 10 years kept pleading with the emperor, take him out, take him out, because he was instrumental in mass murder over and over 
and over again. And after 10 years, Rome said, you're not qualified, and they sacked him. The third Herod is Herod Antipas. We've already talked about him. We talked about him last week as the fox. This guy is the one that continued this violence. We don't know much about him, but that Mark 6 account where he actually murders John the Baptist and puts his head on a platter to appease his stepdaughter, Salome. The last Herod, Herod Agrippa II, is the least violent and he will rule the longest. He will reign from AD 51 all the way to 100. For 49 years he will reign. And because he is the least violent, God gives him the longest reign. He's the one that in Acts 25 and 26, Paul will make his testimony before. And of course he will end up being imprisoned and he will be shipped to Rome and and you know the story. He ends up dying. He's martyred for his life. So he's still a violent Herod. The Herod of today is Acts 12. He's Herod Agrippa I. His best friend as a child is Caligula. If you know anything about the Roman emperors in a 400-year period, the most shockingly vile emperor is this Herod's best friend. He may not have gotten the notoriety of Nero who burns Rome to the ground, but Caligula is the most shockingly vile Herod or most shockingly vile emperor and his best friend is our Herod. That gives you an idea of what this, this man is like. And to cross this man is a terribly bad idea. And yet we have two cities that have done it. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, the manager. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now this is very interesting. It's a bit surprising. These are seaboard cities. They are Phoenician cities. So we would expect that they provide for their own food. But in fact, they don't. They're mercantile exchangers. They're not fisherwomen and men. In fact, they exchange merchandise from all over the Roman Empire. And for a thousand years, all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, during the reign of David, for a thousand years, they have depended on the area of Palestine, what we would call Israel today. They have depended on that land to send food and they send goods back. It's kind of like what we have right now in the news with OPEC closing the spigots by 2 million barrels a day and the world feels it, right? Well, that's what's happening. Herod is closing the spigots and Tyre and Sidon for the last thousand years has depended on food from the Galilee and they're not getting it. And so they've got to do something. They're going to die as a nation and so they hire Blastus to do some intermediary work for them. They get an audience with the king, and that audience happens to be at Caesarea Maritima. So let me pick up again and read 21 to 23. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes made of silver, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
In a moment, I'm going to read the same account from Josephus. And he tells us something that is not in this account. In fact, he tells us a lot that is not in this account. Josephus actually gives us 15 pages of this exact event, and we get a half a dozen verses. So we know it is in Caesarea Maritima. I want to describe the city to you today. Because you can go to Caesarea Maritima, and as you enter Caesarea Maritima, this would be one side, and over there is right on the Mediterranean. So you enter, and you have these huge walls and a moat. And actually, it's Crusader. It's a thousand years late. It wasn't there with our account, but it's, it's pretty impressive. If you ever think of like what the Crusaders would be like, this, this is unbelievable. Walls and moats, and it's pretty cool. So you enter in, and right here, you have a huge temple, we think, to Jupiter. And then you have the Agora, and the Agora is the marketplace, so you have a number of stores. And then right here, you have an incredible amphitheater. I preached in it a number of times. And in this amphitheater, I don't know, it's probably 20,000 seats. And it faces the Mediterranean, and I'm told uh, they have huge rock concerts there today. And like 50,000 people squeeze into 20,000 seats of stone to listen to the concert. Now, I told you I preached in there a lot of times, and I used to preach with my back to the Mediterranean and my group right there, and, and they're all taking their pictures. <laughs> and I'm preaching. Are you kidding me? And they're paying no attention to what I say. So now I put them over here. <laughs> they can't see the Mediterranean, and they got to listen to me. But this is where part of the spectacles took place. The spectacle was kind of like... Uh, it's kind of like the Olympics, except it's not only athletic events, but it's also drama and oration. And so in this huge amphitheater, you have people doing dramas and oration for medals. And then right here is a hippodrome. Hippo is the Greek word for horse, and it's actually where they had horse chariot races picture five different chariots running side by side in a huge circle. And all along here are the places where people can sit, about eight to 10,000 seats, something like that. And all of that is visible today. This is the text that we have. And this particular text has been recorded, not just biblically, but by Josephus. You see, the spade of archaeology over and over again gives us the truthfulness, the veracity of Scripture. But sometimes, in addition to that, we have a number of biblical texts that are recorded outside of Scripture that gives us details that we don't even have in Scripture. This would be the case. So let me read some, a small portion of Josephus. He got 15 pages. You don't have time for that. I mean, come on, the Packers are playing, right? So let's get going. Antiquities. After the completion of the third year of his reign over the whole of Judea, Agrippa came to the city of Caesarea. There are two of them, but this is Caesarea Maritima. And here he celebrated spectacles, that is dramatic performances, chariot races. On the second day of the spectacles, clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that his texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver... Illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant 
and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious to us, they added, that is, forgive us, uh, atone for us. And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. He then felt a stab of pain in his heart, and he died. Josephus gives us 15 pages of what took place that was the end of this fourth Herod, Herod Agrippa I. But it's not just Josephus, it's also Eusebius. In his ecclesiastical history, he also retells the entire event. Now, why do these ancient historians retell us the event? Well, certainly because it's true, but also because the meaning of the text was not lost on them. And the meaning of the text is this. God is great, and we are not. We use the word greatness all the time. I do it, you probably do it. Judge, Aaron Judge is great. And he is a Yankee. So yeah, he is great. But compared to God, not so much. And we use these words great very loosely. And the text wants us to understand. Josephus wants us to understand. Eusebius wants us to understand. God alone is truly great. I think of Louis Fourteenth. If you know anything about Louis XIV of France, he died in 1715. Most of his ruling was in the 1600s. He had, without a doubt, the most magnificent reign, the most God-blessed reign, though he didn't give glory to God, that anyone in Europe has had. The opulence, the magnificence of his reign was not lost on Louis. And so he gave himself a nickname, Louis the Great. I'm sure he said it with humility. And Louis the Great not only lived in opulence, he wanted to die with the most magnificent funeral Europe had ever seen. And so he decided to write about what would happen and it would be in this huge cavernous cathedral and it would be pitch dark and there would be thousands of people and he would come in in a casket made of solid gold. And on his casket was a single candle in this black, ominous, huge cathedral. And the picture was that he was the great light in the darkness of all of Europe. And there were thousands there. And Bishop Massillon came up and blew out the candle and said, only God is great. That was not what Louis asked for, just in case you're wondering. But he got it. Only God is great. And that's a different message than we hear today. We tend to believe that we are the master of our own destiny, the captain of our own ship. We are self-made women and self-made men. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, work the plan and plan the work and you will succeed. And I don't want to deny the fact 
that we put a lot of effort into our work. And I don't want to deny the fact that some have had a lot of schooling. And I don't want to deny the fact that some have had a lot of technological training. And, and these things are important. But ultimately, we are not self-made. God created us. God sustains us. And God gives us the opportunity to succeed in this life. Take the most talented, skilled, smartest individual in this room and place that individual in a third world country where there is disease, no education, no upward mobility, and the things that are achieved here in this land of opportunity would not, could not be achieved in certain parts of the world. Go to Haiti today, where the president was assassinated, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, something like that, and the country is in utter disarray, and teenagers literally are ruling the country. They're controlling the ports. They're controlling all of the streets. A bunch of teenage gangs are controlling Haiti right now, this day. And there is no upward mobility, no possibility of advancement right now in certain parts of that country. We are not self-made. We add to what God has given us through hard work and education and technological training and the rest. But we have not accomplished what we have based on just our own ingenuity and hard work. God has helped us. Paul puts it this way. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's an incredible passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to read parts of it from 10 to 18. Deuteronomy 8, 10 to 18 says this. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. Instead, remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the ability to create wealth. In Daniel 2.21, God says he raises up and he takes down kings. We have an example of this in Daniel chapter 4. Let me read chapter 4 verse 30. This is about Nebuchadnezzar and he looks around and he says, this is Babylon the great which I have created with my own hands. Now if you know anything about Babylon in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, then you know that he has the hanging gardens that are written about all over antiquity. He has gardens that are rivaled by nothing in antiquity. He was used by God to create something great. But he says this, is not this Babylon the great, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Next verse. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. 
O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with you within the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time, most believe it's seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. God does it. God creates it. God sustains it. 1 Samuel 2, 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. This is really not the world we live in. We live in a world in which we tend to exalt ourselves. We tend to exalt the things that come back to make us look good. We tend to be, not you, but our world tends to be a lot like Herod Agrippa I or Louis XIV or Nebuchadnezzar who all say Babylon the Great, Rome the Great, Israel the Great, self the Great. And God says when your belly is full and when you sit in your house, when you look at what I have allowed you to accumulate, remember to thank me. Remember to praise me. Remember to give me my due. That's what God requires of you and of me. Have we taken time to do so? And then he finishes with these two verses. I suppose... Some probably uh, just don't attach verse 24 and 25 because it doesn't seem to flow. I think it does. But the word of God increased and multiplied, verse 24. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Do you remember how the entire account of Acts 12 began? It began with, Herod Agrippa I, murdering James. And when he murders James, the populace likes it, and he wants to get in good with the populace, and he thinks, if I take out one leader of the Christian church, and they like it, how about two? And so he rests Peter, and you remember, he's going to put Peter to death, and an angel rescues Peter. So the text begins this way. James is dead, Peter is imprisoned, and Herod is triumphing. How does the text end? Herod is dead. Peter is free. And the word of God is triumphing. You see the chiastic expression. Man thinks he's in control. God ultimately takes control. And then we read in verse 25. It tells us in verse 24 that the, the word continues. And in verse 25... It says that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark are going to distribute the word. Now in verse 24, it says the word of God is advancing and it's true. The word of God advanced. But yet we have a martyrdom. We have an imprisonment. We have 
the church under attack, and yet the gospel goes forth. That tells me that sometimes there will be martyrdom. Sometimes there will be suffering by God's people, and yet the kingdom is going to move forward. In fact, it's promised in Matthew 24, 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I take it to be that the last sign of Jesus' return is that people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation will proclaim God and Agrippa the first can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. Nebuchadnezzar can't stop it. Louis the 14th can't stop it. God is going to see the nations come to know him. And we have a part in that. And that's verse 25. Verse 25 is that Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas's cousin or nephew, same word, so we're not sure of the relation, John Mark, go out. And we're going to read about this in Acts 13, 14, and especially 15. And you remember, we have the first missionary journey, and they head out, and they get to Galatia. They get to a place called Pamphylia, a place filled with marauders and malaria. And John Mark says, I didn't sign up for this, and he runs. And he abandons Barnabas and Paul, and they finish the missionary journey. A little time goes by, and Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go off around too. And Barnabas says, great, I'll go get John Mark. And, and Paul says, over my dead body. He's a quitter. There's no place for quitters in the kingdom of God. So he can go home, we're going. And you remember that such a disruption between them occurred that Paul went one way with Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and John Mark went another way. And then get to the end of the life of Paul. It's AD 61. He's writing his last will and testament, first and second Timothy. He's on death row. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. I know he dies. And he writes, send John Mark to me. He's useful. And that's how the kingdom of God advances. If he had only written Paul and Barnabas, I would have been intimidated because they're here and Jeff's way down here. But he threw in a quitter, a failure, a loser, John Mark. And the truth is, our talk is probably better than our walk. And we have moments of failure in our lives. Certainly that's true for me. And I can feel so unworthy and and yet God says, hey, John Mark, he got a second and a 30th and a 100th chance. And, and so do you, Jeff, and so do you. And the kingdom of God is going to advance and Herods are going to get in our way. And Louis XIV and Nebuchadnezzar's and Satan is going to get in our way. But we've already been told that the kingdom will advance and people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will come to know Jesus and the word will advance. It's going to happen. It is happening. And he wants you. And he wants me. Some of you are Paul and Barnabas, and some of you are down here with me and John Mark. And we failed, and, and God says, hey, confess, agree with me. Repent, turn from that sin, and press forward, because the kingdom advances.
not with, just with Paul and Barnabas, but also John Mark working in and through us. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you that the kingdom does advance. I thank you that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And then when we get out of our own way and when we start to realize that you alone are great and we are your servants and we think less of ourselves and more of you and yet realistically of ourselves that you want to use us and we have that right feeling, then engage us and use us as you promise you will. And may your word go forth as you've already declared it will. And may your kingdom come first here on earth and then in heaven. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.